If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We've been here for several weeks and I want to just continue and wrap up. We're going to take just a short amount of time this morning to consider some of the things that are contained within Matthew's first chapter. We've obviously spent over the last four weeks of Advent, we've spent time just in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. We talked a little bit about the the uh, um, the genealogy of Jesus and the, the dysfunction and, and all of the things that we see contained within that. Um, but then we spend the bulk of our time on verses 18 through 25 talking about concepts like Jesus being fully God and fully man um, and the mediation that he makes on our behalf. And then also we spoke of the, uh, the, 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 the uh, inclination that Joseph had, especially in verse 19, to divorce his wife quietly. We saw then that there was a there was a special understanding of what righteousness meant for someone and that, that that bore itself out as Joseph demonstrated compassion to Mary. Um, and, and then last week we discussed the fact that much of what's contained here in verses 18 through 25 is in fact unthinkable. Is in, in, in fact unthinkable. That there is a unthinkable people being welcomed into an unthinkable kingdom um, with a king that came in an unthinkable way. We see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew called it, plays itself out throughout the course of Matthew's gospel in a very real but strange sort of way. In a very real but strange sort of way. Even that video that we watched this morning, I think, highlighted that a little bit where we saw Mary being almost shamed with those two men that were speaking and you could see the shame on her face. This was an unthinkable way for the king of the universe to come about. But we saw that, we see that throughout the course of Matthew's gospel. And so this morning, as we've sort of had those things going on in the back of our minds, I want to consider sort of our current context and consider what's going on in our world in 2016. Soon to be 2017 in one week. Um, the, this week... Um, if, if you're an English person, like I am, my sister's here this morning, she's also an English person, Sheila loves to, we love to talk English stuff. So, um, the new Oxford Dictionaries released their 2016 Word of the Year. Their Word of the Year um, happens to be post-truth. Post-truth. It's hyphenated. Um, I don't know how much I trust the new Oxford Dictionaries. Last, last year's Word of the Year was an emoji. Um, it, was, it was a, it was the, 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 the laughing but crying emoji. I, I don't know if you use that one. Sometimes I do. Um, but, but the Washington Post article this week about the New Oxford Dictionary's uh, selection of post-truth is the word of the year. They, the, the article starts out this way. It's official. Truth is dead. Facts are passe. That's interesting, right? That's an interesting statement to make. And they actually acknowledge the irony of this, right? They actually acknowledge the irony of it because it's a journalistic and they're saying, facts are passe, but here we're giving you the facts. That's a little ironic, right? The official de definition that the New Oxford Dictionary gives for post-truth is this. Relating to or denoting circumstances which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than, appeals, than, than that which appeals to emotion or personal belief. So the WAPO article continues... In this case, post, the prefix post, it doesn't mean in the past, but it means um, after. So much time as it implies an atmosphere in which a notion is irrelevant. But then again, the, the author of the article says, but then again, who says you have to take our word for it anymore, right? <laughs> Lots of factors in play here. 
right? We see this word, there's an explosion of use of this word in 2016, an explosion of use of post-truth, lots of factors in play, which is a, the distrust of media. Our Facebook feeds are full of fake news, right? We have this going on and on and on. And, and so, according to the Washington Post and the New Oxford Dictionaries, we live in a world that is post-truth. And probably what lies at the heart of this, this is sort of a strange spot to start on Christmas morning, but part of what lies at the heart of this, I think, is, a, um, is an exponential acceleration of individualism in our context, right? An exponential acceleration of individualism in our context. No longer is individualism just hiking up yourself by the bootstraps and getting through your day-to-day saying, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to take hold of my physical circumstances through my own self-reliance. But it's actually determining your perceived reality. It's no longer just about the physical, generating the physical outcome, but actually determining your, phys- or your, your, your actual perceived reality mentally. There's no external truth, is what post-truth tells us. There is no external truth that governs your day-to-day. We ask questions like, what do you feel? Or what does your heart tell you? Those have become the primary criteria for taking action in our world. What does your heart tell you? We get to Christmas season, and we turn on our TV, right? We turn on our TV, and we are inundated with an understanding of, of believe, right? This idea that we just hear believe, believe, believe in commercials for... Lexus and Macy's, right? Just believe completely out of context this idea. Just believe, and that raises the question, right? Believe in what? If we live in a post-truth culture, can we believe that our culture is actually post-truth? These are the questions that sort of raise. So, but for the Christian on Christmas morning, however, stability comes not through what culture dictates, right? So, if our culture is telling us we're post-truth. Uh, our stability comes not through what culture dictates or what culture tells us is important, what we find inside of ourselves, but a God, although completely different from us, right, bursts into our world at Christmas. Our stability comes not in what culture dictates or what we find inside of us, but something external, a God who bursts into our world at Christmas. And so when we look particularly this morning, we're going to look at verse 21, when the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When we consider what that means for us, we consider this, that the incarnation clearly proclaims the gospel by demonstrating to us God's commitment to reestablishing the broken relationship between God and man. Again, the incarnation clearly proclaims to us the gospel by demonstrating God's commitment to reestablishing the broken relationship between God and man. Jesus, God coming to earth, is saying to us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in that, the potential for the relationship that we can have with God is reestablished. So a couple of ideas then this morning. This truth that that comes to us through God's Word is not dictated culturally, right? We have the tendency to weigh cultural things higher because we can see them, because we see them, because we can touch them. We tend to weigh those things higher than others. 
Our culture claims that it has to has a read on truth and that the culture is what shapes truth, but not so different from the culture that Jesus broke into, right? Jesus broke into a very similar culture. And while we live in this sort of this postmodern understanding where truth is relative and it's found inside of you or or, or post-truth or however you want to say it. Jesus broke into a world where a lot of these same things were were happening. We saw last Sunday that Jewish culture to which Jesus was born would have reviled the idea that God could have ever been man. Again, they wouldn't have even spoken the, the name of God. They wouldn't have even said the name Yahweh. They wouldn't have even written it down. So this culture reviled the idea that God could be man and yet, we see very clearly in Matthew chapter 1 that that's exactly what happens. And the cultural constructed notion that God could not be man shaped many's response to Jesus, right? We see throughout the Gospels, how many times did people pick up stones to throw them at Jesus when he claimed to be God? And this finally, ultimately, resulted in Roman influence, Right? Romans being influenced to intervene and to execute Jesus. And the culture was saying, we know who God is and this isn't it. We know who God is and this isn't it when they looked at Jesus. Similarly, our culture says God is just whoever you want him to be. Right? Oftentimes we just hear God is just whoever you want him to be. Every path leads to God. I watched a video this week. It was... It was titled something like The State of Theology in America, but it was, it was staggering how many people, it was like 15 minutes, how many people throughout the course of that video just said, you know what, no, God, there's, a, there's multiple ways to get to the Father. But if you read your Bible, if you believe the truth that's contained within it, there is absolutely no way that that's possible. There were people even claiming in that video that, that we are all gods. Well, we're just all gods. We're like, what, what way to God? Well, well, we're all gods, so that's whatever. It's okay. We're there already. And even just sharing the gospel with people who I come in contact with regularly, I hear something along the way, I just can't believe a God that would allow something like this or something like this in my life or some major event in history to happen or, or that God would just allow things to go this way in our world or to do this or that. But Jesus said very clearly, John records Jesus very clearly saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one gets to the Father but through Him. And if Jesus says that He is God and He is the way to God, He is waging, in that statement, He is waging all-out war on post-truth. That's right. He is waging all-out war on post-truth. Why? Because the truth can't change and it's not contained within. The truth that our culture says is true or not true or post-true or whatever it is that our culture says has no bearing or influence on what's contained within God's divinely revealed word to us. And so, truth is not culturally dictated and secondly, it's not what we find inside of ourselves. Um, Princess Diana said, only do what your heart tells you. Only do what your heart tells you. This is a pretty common notion, and I think it's the way that many people live, right? Say, what's contained within me? What, what am I going to do? What are the things that, that my heart is telling me to do? And then follow those paths. And it's sort of this hallmark. It becomes the hallmark of this 
post-truth world, this, this post-truth, hyper-individualized culture. A gentleman by the name of John Bloom writes this in relation to Princess Diana's assertion. This sounds so simple and liberating, right? It does sound so simple and liberating. It's almost become cliche for us to say. We'll just do what's in your heart. It sounds so simple and liberating. John Bloom goes on to write, it's tempting to believe unless you consider that your heart has sociopathic tendencies. Jesus said, speaking of this very thing in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For the heart, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament wrote, wrote very clearly, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But that sounds pretty harsh. But if you knew someone who was a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, a slanderer, slandered others regularly, would you do what he told you to do? Would you hold counsel with that individual? Probably not. And yet, that's what Jesus says about our house. Hearts. I wouldn't let them babysit my kids. So considering this, right, considering the fact that we live in this world that tells us that we're post-truth and just to do what you find contained within you, this brings us then to this morning, the good news of Christmas. What is the good news of Christmas? And it really is summed up in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Matthew. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <coughs> this was not a cultural solution to the problem that the people in first century Palestine had. This was not a cultural solution by any means. This was not an individual or internal solution to the problem. It was very much external. It was God breaking into the world to save people from their sins. And it's our sin that separates us from God. Oftentimes, during the Christmas season, we say things like, peace on earth, or we sing about peace on earth, right? 102 years now, 102 years ago, on Christmas Day, and today, in World War I, 1914, men got up out of their trenches <coughs> on the wall across the Western Front and walked, they shook hands. There's a bit of a language barrier in most cases. They shook hands, they exchanged presents, they played soccer, sort of created this, this heartwarming scene. But on December 26th, the very next day, the conflict resumed. They began shooting each other, and it resulted in one of the most, um, the, the highest casualties in, in, in any war in human history. 38 million estimated. And it really gave way for another 58 to somewhere in the $80 million, or maybe million dollar, million casualty range just a few years later during World War II. But when we talk about peace on earth, I think the world thinks that we're talking about an end to physical war. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Paul writes very clearly in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
So we look at this and we say peace on earth. We say peace on earth means no more physical war. But what, we, but what really needs to be understood is that this conflict between man and God is over. The sin that is in direct opposition to who God is, is rectified. Peace on earth is proclaimed in the incarnation of Jesus because God literally came down and achieved all that needed to be achieved so that peace could be made between God and man. The enmity that was experienced between God and man is now rectified. A post-truth culture will tell you that this is impossible. Or it will tell you that there isn't even a God that exists in order to, um, in order to have right relationship with. The author of Proverbs tells us that that is a fool who says, who looks around and sees creation and says there is no God. So the admonition in this morning is today, on Christmas Day, we're here together, right? We're celebrating together as a family. We've talked a lot about the fact that we have an identity that's in Jesus, that, is, that ties us together in a way that we cannot be tied together by anything else, even familial ties, right? When Jesus was approached, we've quoted this before, but when Jesus was approached and told that his mother and his brothers were outside looking for him, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He said, he opened his arms wide and he looked at his followers and said, those who do the will of the Father. And it's those who did the will of the Father as a result of the understanding of who he was. Not as a result of what they did, but a result of who he was. It was an external solution to an internal problem. It was not culturally dictated. It was a man who dramatically opposed culture in every way. And again, the idea rings true for us then that, that, the, that this unthinkable kingdom was being brought about through this unthinkable king who sat down and washed the, his, his subjects' feet rather than, rather than lording over them, their status in the kingdom. So today and Christmas, as we're together, consider that God has made a way for you, Right? When we see here in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We see that this is not a cultural solution that we together have to craft collectively. We see that this is not an individual reality, one that lies somewhere deep in our hearts that we have to dredge up. But this is a solution that came in the form of a baby in the major, the most humblest of circumstances. This one was the way. He was the truth, even in a post-truth culture. He was the life. Let's pray.